Stevie Wonder, Blue Sky Week Ahead and lots happening on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. We can't shrink our grief and we can't shrink the, the place that person had in our lives, but we can get bigger around it. You know, um, and it's not toxic positivity or pretending things haven't happened or not processing the feelings. It's about perspective. Yeah, it does look like we're going to reach that heat wave status, which technically is five days over 25 degrees. We're getting quite close to 25 degrees today. Clonmel actually is just 23.9, I see, in the last half hour, and it's 23.5 degrees in Carlow. Life's too short to cook. Because you <laughs> might enjoy it, because it's therapeutic. Listen, because... mate, somebody invented the toaster. That's my life sorted. And where else to start well, with that prediction of long hot days and balmy nights? Here's Mary Wilson from Morning Ireland. And back at home, the rain clouds have cleared and Met Erin is predicting beach weather over the next few days. The mercury could climb close to 30 degrees with long hot days and balmy nights. Connell Ruth is forecaster with Met Erin and the bearer of sunny news this morning. Good morning, Connell. Um, Good morning, Mary. What's causing the, the turnaround here from, you know, recent high temperatures in, in the mid to high teens to these temperatures now moving into the high 20s? So currently we have a region of high pressure over the country and that's giving us largely clear skies as well as very light winds. And so during the day that allows the sun to shine through and really heat up the land and the air above it. What we're also going to see over the coming days is that high pressure tracking away to the east, so out towards Denmark and beyond. And as it does so, the airflow around that high pressure will also draw up, draw up a lot of warm continental air from mainland Europe. And so that will also contribute a lot to the very warm temperatures that we're expecting. So looking ahead, how, how far can you look ahead for us and what can you tell us about what we can expect in terms of temperatures? Well, there, there is still a bit of uncertainty, but generally we can expect widespread temperatures in the mid-20s later in the week from around uh, Wednesday onwards and possibly getting up into the high 20s in some parts by Friday. And the hottest temperatures are uh, currently expected to persist right the way through the weekend. Uh, the nights will also be a good bit warmer than average, especially from around Thursday night onwards, with temperatures not really falling below the mid-teens. Now, generally, the southeast of the country is expected to see the highest temperatures over the coming days, but the Midlands will then also get uh, very hot as we head through the weekend. And it will stay coolest near uh, western and northwestern coasts but based on current projections all areas can expect to see temperatures reach at least the low 20s over the weekend. Generally Connell, is August one of our best summer months for, for, for good temperatures? Uh, well certainly the meteorological summer is defined as June, July and August so it would certainly be one of the, the three typically warmest months of the year. Yeah. Uh, and do you or to, to what do we, do we attribute the high temperatures? You've, you, you've t- talked about the pressure zones and so on. But uh, when you look at what we've seen in July, when we, we hit 30 plus, uh, are we looking here at the impact or the effect of climate change? Well, it's difficult to attribute any single event to climate change, but certainly spells of hot weather like this are something that we're seeing more frequently as we continue to change the climate. And that's really only going to continue as we move forward. Mm. 
What about advice for people now? Obviously, uh, get the get the sun cream on and uh, stay in the shade during the hottest of the temperatures. And uh, I suppose for sure, it's yeah. uncomfortable for night nights for some as well. Yeah. So one of the big pieces of uh, pieces of advice would be stay hydrated. Make sure you drink plenty of liquids. And as you said, we do have a high. Uh, UV index at the moment with all that sunshine so be sure to lash on the sun cream if you think you might need it Uh, also be sure to check in with elderly people and anyone else who might be vulnerable make sure that they're coping okay in the warm weather Uh, another big thing would be to take care if you're going in the water Uh, make sure you stay within your depth and don't take risks and lastly be careful if you're lighting barbecues or campfires as the hot and dry weather will lead to an increased danger of forest fires breaking out. Connor Ruth from Met Erin talking to Mary Wilson from Morning Ireland. Then later more warnings about water safety in the hot weather on the news at one with Brian Dobson. Now the Ornelay and Hoth in North Dublin had a busy day yesterday with six people rescued in two separate incidents. Thankfully no one was injured. The all-weather lifeboat was launched shortly after three o'clock yesterday afternoon to assist three people on board a motorboat. More concerning, the Ornelay says, was a call about an inflatable dinghy. Hoth Ornelay inshore lifeboat helm Ian Martin was among the rescue crew and he joins us now. Ian, th- thanks for taking our call. This situation in relation to the inflatable dinghy, it's uh, I think something you and the Ornelay have a lot of concern about whenever we see some good weather like we did over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, it's getting more and more common uh, seeing a lot more of these kind of inflatables, which are more suitable for the likes of swimming pools and stuff like that. Um, they're just unfortunately not suitable really for the Irish Sea where we get a good bit of wind and, and current and stuff like that. And if it's blowing the wrong direction, they can be taken out to sea rather quickly. What happened in this case? In this case was exactly that. Um, there was uh, someone going by on a yacht and they, they saw this person or three people as it was in this inflatable. Um, and they were monitored for about half an hour or so, and they noticed that they weren't making any headway as they were trying to row back to Borough Beach from Ireland's Eye, but they were just going into the southerly going wind and also the tide. Um, so they were making no headway, and as they were monitored for such a long time, the decision was made that they were probably getting quite tired and would require some assistance. So we launched our inshore lifeboat just to give them that assistance and bring them back to the safety of Hoth Harbour. And what sort of, uh, what sort of reception did you get when you arrived on scene? They were no doubt relieved to see you? Yeah, I think there, were, there was one male gentleman rowing and he was certainly relieved to see me. Um, there, was, there was two other females on board and I don't think they really realised the seriousness of, of the, um, where they were. Mm. They, they weren't making any headway and, and they didn't really realise it. So um, when we came alongside, they were certainly relieved to see us and glad to have us bring them back ashore. Yeah, no inflatables in the sea. Ian Martin on the News at One with Brian Dobson. And on the live line, Alan called Joe with another warning about the heat. Well, yesterday I was um, out in the back garden and I came back into the house and I could smell burning. Okay. And I thought that, because the window was open in the bedroom, I thought it was um, someone's barbecue. All right. So it was only later on that I looked and I saw that the side of the bedroom locker was all burnt. It was, I couldn't understand how the sun was actually shining in through the window and reflecting back onto the locker. And it was badly, badly scorched. From a mirror or from? Yeah, yeah. from the mirror. It was reflecting onto the mirror and onto the locker. So it was kind of s- searing a hole in the locker, or yeah, like yeah. a, and it like could a have, laser. If, if we hadn't been there, like I say, if you hadn't been left around any length of time, it would have went up, you know. Okay, so be careful. What mir- mirrors? And lucky you were there. Lucky, yeah. It, it's um, and because the window was open, the fire alarm didn't go off, you know. Good point. So the thing to do, but people are leaving their houses in 
hot weather, close the blinds or curtains. Good point. Well, it's very good to close, close the but blinds or curtains and not weather. Any kid plays cool. It's, 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 but by the way, are these yeah. are these makeup mirrors or mirrors on the wall or um, a little makeup? There's a photograph there. My daughter tweeted it. It's a little mirror, a little makeup mirror. It was on the on, actually on the floor behind the locker, so you wouldn't think the sun would even get near it. But a slight bit of the ray of the sun went in and caught it, and then it bounced back onto the locker. Wow. Okay, be very careful. Be be very careful. Well spotted, Alan. Well, that's Alan there on the live line with Joe Duffy. And then later, Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather was talking about the heat wave with Catherine Thomas. Yeah, it does look like we're going to reach that heat wave status, which technically is five days over 25 degrees. We're getting quite close to 25 degrees today. Clonmel actually is just 23.9, I see, in the last half hour. And it's 23.5 degrees in Carlo. Mm. But... Tomorrow we might just get to 25, but if we don't get to it tomorrow, we'll certainly get to it Wednesday. And then it's going to continue to get warmer Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And even Sunday looks like being over 25 in many places. So that'll give us five days over 25 degrees with lots and lots of sunshine. So a really, really good week ahead. Okay, And it's been getting um, a little cooler, I suppose, at night in some places. That looks set to change as well. Yes, indeed. It was cool this morning. There was a nice bit of fog, actually. I put the drone up and put some nice pictures up. It looked lovely, but it was I nice and fresh. I saw them on Twitter, actually. And if anybody wants to go on and have a look, um, the the pictures are stunning. Were they from this morning? They were, yeah, just above my house outside Tullow. And it was a stunning morning. But unfortunately, that freshness is going to go away as well because the nights will start to get warmer. So it, it really won't be dropping below... After tonight, maybe it might get down to eight or nine degrees, but then it'll get warmer each night. So by Thursday or Friday, you're looking at temperatures not dropping below maybe 15 or 16 degrees. So that means you're going to be kicking the sheets off and you're probably going to be struggling to maybe get some sleep. And obviously for some vulnerable and older people, it's, it's hard if they can't cool down because the houses are going to get warmer. So it's really going to get very warm at nighttime and during the day. So mm. it is going to be uncomfortable for those of us like me, actually, Catherine, who don't like the heat. <laughs> Um, and how unusual, I, I, I mean, because we're we're seeing obviously a lot more hot weather, we're experiencing a lot more hot weather. Um, but when, I mean, you've just described and classified what a heatwave actually is. How unusual is it to get one in August? Yeah, I mean, it's not common. It's certainly not common, mm. but we have seen them in the past, um, but they don't come along too often. Actually, funnily enough, the, the record temperature for August is 31.5 degrees and that's our hometown of Carlow holds mm. that record for August. Um, which was in 1995. So not that long ago. We, I'm sure we both remember that. Um, but we, we can see hot spells in August, but they're not that common. So we, we really do want to make the most of it. OK, so are we going to be hotter than some parts of Spain? And friends of mine are there at the moment and it's 42, 43 degrees in some parts of Spain. Um, and they're feeling, what were they calling it? The, the heat dome or whatever they're calling it. Is that what it is? A heat dome? Yeah, it's it's kind of where basically you have heat that doesn't go away, it just sits over you and, and there are going to see temperatures in the into 42, 43 degrees in the coming days in Spain. So we may not be quite as hot as that. But I mean, I was looking, somebody was asking me for a forecast of Termolinas and their temperatures were 31, 32. So mm. we're not going to be that far off it because some of the weather models show that we could just about get to 30 degrees possibly on Saturday, especially in the southeast. So we're not going to be too far off it. So if you're holidaying at home, this week, you might as well be in Termalinas, but you'll, be, you'll be on the beaches in Ireland. <laughs> um, and how long do we hope it will continue, Alan? 
it looks like set to last right at the end of the week and into the weekend and Sunday should hold on to it for most. Now, it might start to just ease off in the northwest on Sunday, but we look really right through until Sunday, so even the good weekend. A lot of uncertainty around Monday ne- and into next week. We could see a breakdown that could turn a little thundery, um, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. But believe it or not, there's a lot of farmers around here looking for rain as well because it's been mm. very, very dry. So there's very little grass growth. The soil moisture deficit is over 60 in this part of the world. So there'll be some some people certainly hoping that it comes to a wet end, but uh, very uncertain yet, and it could could prolong even a few more days. Okay, well, loads of sun cream on for everybody um, because, again, UV levels uh, will be very high, uh, I'd imagine, as well. So lots of sunscreen, lots of ice cream. Have you had an ice cream yet today? Not yet, but anyone that follows my Twitter will know I often post a picture of a 99 with a weather update and nothing else other than a picture of a 99 and a blue sky. So I think there could be lots of 99s coming my way this week. Nice. Alan O'Reilly talking to Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And on today with Philip Outer Hayes, musician and former bass player with the Pogues, Cotter Reardon, Food for Thought, talking about the food of our life. Last time you and I were in here, we were taking advantage of your Pogues era uh, gathered knowledge. You gave me a crash course uh, in punk. This is going to be completely different. Completely different. I do remember you saying, my problem with the Ramones, and then the the, the sound of blood just pounding in my ears (laughs) after that. So this will be much more jolly. What possible (laughs) problem could I have had with the Ramones? What nonsense was I coming up with for the sake of an argument? my question exactly, Philip. Yeah, I was just trying to be a controversialist. You shouldn't have risen to the debate. Ah, sure. Um... I would imagine as a musician, a touring musician in particular, you don't really get to choose your relationship with food, do you? It's kind of defined for you by what you can get. That's exactly right. That is our life. You know, it's what's on the hotel buffet. What can we get for free before we move on? And then it's truck stop food. And then it's uh, sometimes there's catering provided if it's a fancy gig. Sometimes they'll give you what they call a buyout that you'll get a certain amount of food from your fee and you can just go and find somewhere. And sometimes it's a kebab at two in the morning. Mm. (laughs) In the olden times, it used to be uh, service stations up and down the motorways and just stopping off at terrible motorways for baked beans and chips. And thank goodness things are much nicer now and everyone's much healthier now. That's the big difference well, in my life. I was going to say, that kind of experience either pushes people to become really, really ecstatic and really controlling about what it is they eat or you just become freewheeling and you say, yeah, OK, I'll just go with whatever is easiest and choose the path of least resistance. Mm, I, I, that's definitely money. If you can afford to be ecstatic and choosy, you will yeah. be. If you can afford to specify you want organic jelly beans and just the green ones <laughs> <laughs> and then you want the kale salad with the, uh, you know, the wild line caught salmon, then you will. But if you can't, then you just say, can we just have, like, you know, some non, um, MG, what do you call it, MSG noodles or something to fill us up? Uh, this is a complete aside, but can you clarify something for me, please? Sure. I always thought that the... Uh, uh, the M&Ms with all of the blue ones removed yeah. was something that was put into the rider to find out was the promoter paying attention yeah. to the contract as opposed to you guys being fussy. Is that true? That is true. And it's brilliant. It was Van Halen 
Did probably they? not like the that. actual musicians, probably <laughs> somebody on their team. And I, I think it's a great way of just checking. It's a bit mean, though. I mean, most times everyone's doing their best. And if you miss an M&M or two, you shouldn't get cross. Uh, so back to where it is that you found yourself. You didn't have the money. You didn't have all of the choices that you perhaps did. But you know what? You've got good genes. I think that you were going to be able to eat crap for many decades and get away with it. Well, it's just we're engines, aren't we? You put it in and if you can burn it off, you should be all right. And also, I mean, if you can't afford to just eat all day long, that helps as well. I mean, there's so many weird studies where they don't feed mice. <laughs> Some poor mm, mouse's mm, mm. tummy's rumbling and they live long. Longer. The old telomeres don't fray at the same rate. So actually, if you have to pace yourself throughout the day, I know singers now, I'm just a bass player and I only do backing vocals, but singers can't eat before a gig. It's something about the interaction of food and their vocal cords and the production of the sound. I used to hang out with opera singers and they have to wait until after the show and how they don't all faint on stage is amazing to me, but they're super athletes. And eating at that time of night is yeah. not something that could be leave you feeling great. I mean, going to bed with a big full belly. Yeah, that's why they're different. They really are different. Yeah, but you found yourself in this situation as well. Yeah, eating I'm, at 2 I'm like you said, you know, I, I'm that once. I, I really am just grateful for food. I'm grateful to be fed. I'm grateful to be somewhere. If my tummy's rumbling and I can get food, I'm just, whatever it is, I'll eat it and thank you. I'm a bit of a dustbin like that. <laughs> so Philip asked Katya if she ever cooks. Why would I? Life's too short to cook. <laughs> because you might enjoy it because it's therapeutic. Listen, because... mate, somebody invented the toaster and that's my life sources. You can have beans on toast. You can have eggs on toast. You can have Marmite on toast, or cheese on toast. Why would you need to cook? <laughs> Again, I refer you to my previous answer. You might find it therapeutic. You might enjoy it. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Whatever you find therapeutic. No, my therapy is music and bouncing around. So I wouldn't enjoy being okay. in the kitchen trying to do that. Well, Basically, you're a, you're, just... a, you're a first year student is what you are <laughs> in, in your approach to food. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nailed. Nailed. Good. <laughs> Yeah, it's the student cookbook for beginners. Oh, mate, no, I'm embarrassed now. I can just say in my defence, I do have a vague memory of trying to cook and realising that there's an alchemy. What, what, what year was that? About 30 years ago. And there's an, I realised quickly there's an alchemy involved. That you take the ingredients out of the bag and you put them on the counter and you somehow have to get from the raw ingredients to this melange of things at the end result. And there's just, I could not make it happen along uh, the way. The alchemy failed me. You would rather have a chef or an alchemist do it for yes. you. Yes, why do it yourself when there are professionals who are happy to do it? I'm sure they'd be delighted to hear you say that. <laughs> talk, talk to me about touring in America and American food in particular. Sure, well now what would you like to know? America is a very big place. The joy for me of America is regional, finding the regional differences. But I mean the the awful and great thing at the same time that America did to the world was globalisation. I mean, I can't be snotty about it because I remember getting my first McDonald's when I was growing up in London. They arrived in Hounslow in 1978 
And it was the biggest thing. It was like being invited to go to visit the president. It was just, we're going to go to McDonald's. And the, oh, I know, I know. The Look, thrill of it. 1970s Ireland, the McDonald's at the bottom of Grafton Street was the height of sophistication. Right, exactly. And then, of course, when there was a, the first Starbucks I ever saw was on the road. We were in Vancouver. And I was looking out the hotel window and I could see a queue of people down the street. So, like, nosy-like, I ran down, like, what's, what are they queuing for? And they were queuing for coffee. And I was like, my experience of coffee, you know, like, that's instant stuff. Or Bewley's, which is magnificent in its own way. And then going in and finding out they were doing Italian style. And I queued many a day for a Starbucks. Has the novelty of McDonald's and Starbucks not worn off by now? Though? It really has. And I don't know if it's, I'm just so old and jaded or if it's just a repetition. And the joy for me in life now is young people doing things. Food trucks, barbecues, young people trying yeah. things out. You got Everyone's so beautiful and enthusiastic. And they're making the food and you don't have to make and it. And I can just sit there and say, oh, you're so clever. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Thank you. So in your many, many travels, in fact, how many countries do you think you've toured to? Oh, man, I did this. I filled in this map on TripAdvisor and it was yeah. like 600 cities in oh my like God. 100 countries. I was like, yeah. All right. <laughs> so are there highlights? Are there food favourites? My absolute pinnacle of my experiences in life, that the ones that are going to flash before my eyes when I'm dying, I hope will be Ethiopia and Italy. Anywhere that has a deep music and a deep food culture combined is just, that just touches all the circuits in my brain. It makes me so happy. Ethiopian food is just bliss. There's a restaurant by Mulligans in Dublin called, I think it's called Gersha, which is what they call it in Ethiopia when you feed people, like literally you'll take a bit of food and feed someone. It's the supreme gesture of hospitality and it's a mostly vegetarian cuisine and I went and toured all around Ethiopia visiting and it was around Easter, so it was Lent for them, so it was all vegetarian. So there was And where does the music come into it? Is there live music Ethiopia, in most places? Just everywhere. Kasha Reardon from today with Philip Badger Hayes. And in the morning, a conversation about grief, healing and coping with sadness. Oliver Callan's guest, former social worker Lizzie Shortall, was talking about her book, The Lotus and the Tiger, and the event that changed her life. So I worked in social care for a long time with people with disabilities. Yeah. And um, I had it in the back of my mind that I'd like to get into service delivery. And then, um, as you mentioned there, there was a, a life-changing event for me. Um, my older brother passed away uh, by suicide. And after he died... Um, a few years afterwards, I decided I wanted to go back and train as a social worker and get involved in the service delivery of mental health services. Mm. And it was quite some time ago. And our sympathies to you, by the way, your brother, Lar, was his name. Yes. It's um, how many years ago? Is it it's since 18 he died? years now. Yeah, wow. goes very fast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. He was your older brother. He was indeed. Yeah. Can you um, give us a, an insight without prying too much into your relationship with your brother? Because an older brother is... It, it, this being Ireland and where we all come from, 
there's an in, there's an important dynamic there, isn't there, between sister and older brother? There is one hundred percent. So Lara was six years older than me, and he was very much the big the big protective brother. Um, we had a lovely relationship. You know, he would we'd go out in nature or he'd be teaching me things or then as we got older it kind of balanced out you know and he'd appear with you know uh some music and say here look here's some new music listen to this and yeah always trying to educate and yeah, uh, yeah, with this. yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a young man he was he was only 32 yeah and um, your your cups of tea with Lar would be, <laughs> they would become those treasured memories, wouldn't they? 100%, yeah. So anyone who knew Lar knew, you know, there was never a cup of tea far from his hand. And um, we just sit around chatting. Sometimes a, a bit of an art that's lost these days, especially yeah. during lockdown. We all miss that so much, you know. Um, but yeah, sitting around chatting with a cup of tea, putting the world to right. Um, he was a very gentle soul, you know, and he was a creative soul himself. He liked to write too, actually, um, which is something I didn't really get into till after he passed away. Um, so it's interesting to see some of the things he wrote now as well. So, yeah. He was um, he was an, a creative figure and an inspiring figure for you. 100%, yeah, yeah. So at this stage in your life then, because you're, you're slightly younger than him, but you're a very young woman at the time. You had just started your career, had you? Um, I was 26. I was about seven years into working in social care um, mm. with people with disabilities. And then um, three years after he died was when I went back uh, to Trinity and did the, the social work master's. So when you're working at the time, people would kind of assume, well, you're a social worker, you must have some skills to deal with grief. Um, yes. It's almost expected, isn't it? That we yes. Kind of go, well, isn't she, isn't, isn't uh, Lizzie fortunate that she has these kind of tools to deal with? But it was, it was the hard, it, it was a bad blow, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And, um, you know, it might be a bit like what they say about doctors making the worst patients. You know, I could sit down with anybody else um, and, you know, support them as the right things to do. But for myself, um, I didn't. Looking back, I didn't have the coping skills. You know, I didn't. Um, so I kept myself very busy working, studying and then partying at the weekends, right. to be That's honest. the coping. Yeah, yeah. Can you describe for us... Um just the kind of size and the feeling of of your grief, if you could, for if, if you don't mind me. Yeah, um, I was actually, I was interesting you should ask that because normally that would be hard to describe. But at the weekend there, I was doing a reading in the, um, the book and coffee shop in Kilkenny. And um, I was reading from my novel and um, I had forgotten, um, you know, what, that moment was like and the part that I read described you know it was like um so we were we were brought into uh, A&E mm-hmm. and um I was looking in all the beds for my brother um and we were led out the other side and into a small room and I was thinking oh no this is this is like what you see in the movies when you head into the small room yeah. so in my family crammed I have a fairly big family and a nurse came in and told us you know Lara Lara was um, dead on arrival and um, you know I saw everyone around me almost in slow motion you know one person kind of fainted other people were hugging um, and it was like I went underwater it was like I went underwater um, and I was just yeah engulfed so it wasn't until about seven years later 
that I realised actually I hadn't come back fully out yet. Things were still almost in a bit of a blur for me. And Lizzie spoke about the shock of dealing with her brother's death and numbing those big feelings. I suppose when somebody dies by suicide as well, you have the the trauma of that on top mm-hmm. and all the unresolved feelings and the utter shock because nobody ever thinks that their loved one is going to do it, you know. Um, so for me, um, like I said, I kept myself very busy. And then when I finished the course, I went over to Thailand, but uh-huh. I had been there twice before and um First few times had an absolute blast, was with friends. And this time I went on my own. I had just finished college. I was working hard and um, everything seemed, I thought, a bit sunbleached. I was kind of going, God, what's happened to Thailand in seven years? You know, it's um, everything is a bit black and white. And um, then I thought, oh, is it because I'm seven years older? And then I thought, I'm not 70 years older, you know, um, I'm, and then I realised it was me. You know, I was seeing everything kind of through a black and white lens um, because I had been so busy numbing all those big feelings with busyness, with binge drinking, with um, studying that I was numbing the good feelings too. I see. So you're shoving everything down. Yes. So suddenly Thailand, a place that I knew was gorgeous, I couldn't see the gorgeousness. Um, So I said, you know, this has to change. Lara would want me to be happy, you know. Um, Is there something about the feeling of that you're kind of betraying someone who's no longer around if you're enjoying something or seeing uh, the beauty around you? Is there? Oh, I I, I think so, even subconsciously, because I remember, you know, obviously I did have good moments in those seven years, but Mm. I just wasn't fully myself. But I remember about two months after he died, I was living in Ranel at the time. I actually drove through there on the way here. And I remember, um, I don't know what happened, but I kind of almost skipped across the road and had a happy feeling about something. You know, I was with people and I remember suddenly going, oh, my God, I feel happy. Um, and straight away actually feeling quite guilty and thinking, mm. God, how can I be happy? You know, yeah. um, so there is little moments like that. But now I'm completely the opposite. You know, yeah. I'm so And you had grateful. that moment in Thailand where you realised no, yeah. my brother would want me to actually have a bit of. Exactly. And Bit I thought, of happiness. yeah, let him try and let him go, you know. What was the ritual you, you then did? Was it over there in Thailand? You had a particular ritual, which was, was part of this it was. moment. Yeah. So um, my book is called The Lotus and the Tiger. And I started writing it when I was pregnant with my first daughter. Um, and it ended up including the grief journey. So the lotus in the book represents a ritual that I tried to do when I was in Thailand Um So my mother would have a a strong faith and I was looking at her actually with envy, you know, because she seemed to have acceptance despite being devastated. She had some acceptance and I realised I don't have that faith. I just don't. So I went off in search and off I went to temples and um, I I can laugh now because you kind of you have to laugh as well. You you do. You do. I can see you just searching every religion looking for this particular. Yeah. 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 Where's where's the answer to how I get how I accept this, you know? Um, so off I went to a temple and um, the outside there was, um, it was like a big bowl with lotus in it mm-hmm. and there was five of them, but you could only see four. One of them was under the water. So oh. I have four siblings. There was five of us growing up. So I remember thinking for a start, you know, that, you know, we're here. We can't, maybe he's still here, but we can't see him. 
So then in I went and um, there was a lotus just actually on the ground and it was uh, a closed lotus and there was what looked like a tabernacle, which wasn't a tabernacle. I don't know what it was. <laughs> so I actually waited until the monks who were teaching the little children left and um, off I popped to the tabernacle looking thing with the lotus and try to kind of just put it in and do a ritual and say a prayer and that was the start of me trying to let go of Larry you know in this form in the yeah but it, it worked it did it did it started the journey yeah yeah and Lizzie spoke about living with grief I suppose for anyone out there who's grieving at the moment um you know you know, somebody said to me the other day that um, they, they'd lost a child and that somebody said to them, you'll never get over it. And it was the worst thing, really, yeah, she felt yeah. that somebody could say to her. Mm. And I have to agree. And I said to her, you know, um, we can't shrink our grief and we can't shrink the, the place that person had in our lives, but we can get bigger around it. You know, um, and it's not toxic positivity or pretending things haven't happened or not processing the feelings. It's about perspective. You know, I practice gratitude very strongly and mindfulness and um, focusing on all the other things that are there too. They can coexist, mm -hmm. you know, and we can heal and we can move forward. It's a great, it's just a simple phrase because it's, you're not betraying the grief of the person. Yeah. It just yeah. becomes part of your life, isn't it? Is that exactly. the, a very yeah. basic way of saying it? So, so what do, have you ended up doing now? So what I'm doing now is I am teaching mindfulness for well-being to children and adults and I'm writing. Yeah. And, and when you mentioned the toxic positivity, some some people who are cynical about mindfulness will go, oh, no, that's all that is. <laughs> yeah. Or they turning think... American and shouting into the sky. Have a great day. Have a nice day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, you know, sitting cross legged on a mountain, you know, yeah. um, it's not it's not that at all. It's essentially mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the moment without judgment. So it's just being where you're at and being how you are and really if you're struggling, um, I had a lot of anxiety myself in the past. And if you're struggling with anxiety as well, it's a great way to help you calm down. Because if you're in the moment, you're not thinking about the past or panicking about the future. It's irrational, completely irrational. Everything becomes a huge problem. Then, exactly. Yeah. And you can teach this. You can indeed. I'm qualified to teach it. I teach it to children in schools. Yeah. Oh, and how do you do that? I go in for six weeks, once a week, and um, I teach them about mindfulness, gratitude, a lot of breathing techniques, yeah. um, body scans, and they get to put their head on the desk for the last five minutes and be quiet and listen to guided meditation. So they love Shea that. Kola. Yeah. We did that in private school. Little did we know we were doing it. That was usually when the teacher would want to go next door for a gossip. Shea um, yeah. It's a lovely, it's a lovely thought, but it really works for, for, for kids, doesn't it? And they are surrounded with a lot more anxieties than we would have had, uh, than I would have had in my era. Oh, I think so. I'm hearing a lot of people come to me saying eight year olds for some reason, that age seems to be when they can express that they're feeling anxiety. Um, and I'm running summer camps um, with children and parents tell me afterwards, you know, that the the kids are in great form after it, you know. Yeah. We're just talking about summer camps. And the book is is your story, basically, isn't it? But you've kind of fictionalised. Yeah, the book somewhat. is uh, fiction based on true events. So there's the lotus um, and the tiger. Yeah, yeah. And you have a children's book as well. So I do indeed. So Joy's Playground is the children's book um, and it teaches those skills, introduces children to mindfulness, gratitude and self-belief. Lizzie Shorthaw speaking to Oliver Callan in the morning. 
and on the live line, Kian was starting a campaign for bilingual packaging. The campaign is for bilingual packaging. So what they have in Canada is they've got the French and English language on every single thing you, you see in the shop. Mm. You know, you're cooking, you're cleaning, absolutely everything. And so we're looking to get the Irish language in the same way on everything you see in the shop. Irish and English. Well, devil's advocate, like a significant part of Canada speak French in their day to, including cities like Quebec, they, they speak French in their day to, that's their first language. Mm. And a significant part of Canada, their first language is English. Mm. 56% speak English as their first language and 22% speak, Cana- speak French as their first language. So it's a pretty... Well, according to the CSO 2016 census, okay. 40% of Ireland speak Irish language, 1.7 million. About 550,000 speak it in education every day and about 17,000 speak it daily. Precisely 77,000, excuse me. The, the huge gulf there between daily speakers and ability mm. to speak tells me that there's a stigma on speaking Irish. If I were to go to someone that's speaking sick on a tattoo, they would look at you funny. The idea of this is to bring the stigma away, the fear of speaking away from people. And the situation in Canada and Ireland is slightly different in that the Anglo speakers of Canada have not really much interest in learning French. But it's a common refrain, everyone knows about it in Ireland, mm-hmm. that people feel a duty, they want to speak Irish. The reason they can't speak it, most people tell you, is teachers. But to be honest, I don't think that really holds water because how much you can achieve in one hour of Irish a week isn't really, it's not immersion, which needs to be entirely immersed in the language. And this is a way of immersing people by your daily shop every week. For me personally, where I'm from, there's no presence of the Irish language. No one in my family speaks it. My dad is actually not very fond of it. Uh, but mm-hmm. if I were able to go about and do my daily shop, it would day by day, week by week, month by month, build up the skills needed. And then if I took some classes afterwards, I'd have a much stronger foundation to stand on. It's about raising the floor of what it means to have a couple of fuckles. Yeah, I understand. But, but what about, okay... Uh, you're saying if you do your, your your weekly shop, but it doesn't mean that the shop assistant, he or she, can speak Irish. It doesn't, no. But maybe one day, you never know. It's about but when you want every single item in the shop in that's in English, also in Irish. Exactly, yeah. Because when I saw in Canada that it's physically so what's, possible. What's, you know? what's the penalty of Kellogg's, uh, who, I don't know where they package their cornflakes or wherever, Ever packages there, Danish butter, for example. What happens if Danish butter refuse to uh, use uh, Irish and English on their packaging? Are they banned from selling in Ireland? Well, it would be a prerequisite of business in Ireland that you would have to translate your products. But this yeah, is but what's really, the pe- there has to be a penalty, King. And if it's a prerequisite and it's to be enforced, there has to has to be a penalty. Well, then you obviously wouldn't be able to sell your product but see they do comply abroad anyway Kerrygold sells their butter in German you know it's something that can be done it is possible all of these multinational companies sell their products in Canada where they comply with bilingual packaging so it's not asking for something new it's just asking for them to comply with something they do in other jurisdictions anyway Yeah but Canada is a massive market Canada is a massive market you say there's there's uh, 77,000 people here according to the CSO, according to people's own self-declaration, there's 77,000 people here say they speak Irish every day. Like there's there's 550,000 people in education, you know, the, with, with the success of the Gale School. Yeah, yeah. And in a sense, we have to get ahead of this. You, well, there's, know, you see, there's, there's 40 million people living in Canada. It mm, is worth I, a company. It's, it's worth Kellogg's while putting English and French. 
What it's is it? not the not the biggest task though. It's only a small you know, a small regulation to comply with. They've more or less do it in Canada anyway if they have the skills to do okay. so. It's about redesigning, so changing fonts, you know, it's about mm-hmm. making things fit in a package. You know, it's not it's not really that big a task to ask. Okay. And um well a lot of packaging in fairness might have six or seven. Well, not on the name, but it might six or seven list of ingredients on the back, wouldn't they, in different languages? Mm, so uh, one Arabic thing you could do to, to help about that is you could, the government, in the event of this coming through, could put a common words, common vocab list and send it to businesses. This is what they have in Canada. So words like iron, words like calcium, they'd have the translation there. Be something, a document you could look up from the government. So that would keep, uh, keep that side of things down. And then e-numbers are e-numbers, aren't they? Which now, sorry? E-numbers are e-numbers. Like, you don't have to translate e-numbers, obviously. No, no, no. So, so it mightn't be as momentous as... Do you think it'll put up the price of food? Oh, Give, not at all. Why not? There's no, there's no additional packaging to use. There's no indication that that would happen. Well, that's Keen. Then Aidan and Galway called Joe about bilingual packaging. It, it can't work. I mean... We, you know, if you just take a walk around the supermarket where you see Heinz baked beans, and, and we know full well all that's coming in from the UK. The UK has no purpose for the Irish language on its packaging. Do we do we really think that they're going to stand in a, in a warehouse somewhere and segregate out the Irish packaging, which will be an additional cost to us? There is a cost implication to all, all of this, you know. I, I, it's just, it's lovely, and it's, it's a great way of, Letting the language survive, but it's uh, but it, it isn't going to work. Keen, what do you? Keen is back there. I hope. Keen, uh, Aidan's point that it is going to be expensive. Uh, I didn't actually hear Aidan's point. I'm afraid I was cut off. But yeah. it really won't be expensive if you do certain things, like you phase it in over a five-year period, so that you allow businesses to, as a redesign comes up naturally in that time, to comply with the new regulation. It it would really keep everything down cost-wise. At the end of the day. Just and would the, would, the, would the signage on the cans or the tins or the boxes have to be the exact same? You mentioned font, so you know a bit about typography. It would have to be the same font size. Say you have baked beans, Heinz mm. baked beans, okay? Underneath that or above it, you'd have to have Panari Bacalcia, which is the Irish apparently for baked beans. Pretty, pretty, mm. pretty that's some mouthful, that is. More than a mouthful of the the amount of baked beans you get. But are you saying the Panadi Bacalcha has to be the same font, same size as baked beans? I absolutely am, 100%. Well, then, oh, that's, the, well, then that's the end sure. of the small tin. Uh, no, it's, really, it's just about changing the whole logo to be a little bit smaller. Um, they do it in Canada, I really. The question yeah, well, is, Aiden, if they can Aiden, do it there, why can't we do it? It's a, down to the graphic designer. Not really the biggest task in the world, you know? Yeah, but the real, the real opportunity Aiden, there, if I could Aiden, just... Hang on a second. Just like you're saying about fonts and typography, if if you do, you know, if you into design, you know full well that maximum use is made of a label, and to incorporate an additional language for additional ingredients, for additional recycling information, for addition, all the information that you see on a can or a product would all have to be completely reshaped, repositioned, squashed in somewhere. Come on, really? Well, well, now, it's misleading to say it's going to be smushed in somewhere because if you go to Canada and you look at the products they have on the shelves there, I have, a, I have a, a box of bilingual Pringles here and it looks absolutely normal. They have the French and they have the English. 
done very well, very smooth. It looks fantastic. There's no smushing anywhere. The designers are well capable to find a will and find a way to make it work. For a, for a huge population, but not Where for, I, not I for think, a quarter of the population that, that you know... W- at best. I think 5 million is, is population enough, to be honest now. I mean, at the end of the day, there, you're missing the, the real opportunity it, here. The, the real opportunity here is to revive the language in a serious, serious way. You know, we're meeting people at their level. We've got 1.7 million who say they can speak it fluently and are obviously interested in one, seeing the Irish language be more present in their lives. 70% of people in the last Dublin Voice survey said that they wanted to see more Irish used in the city. People love Irish. They want to see it. It's only right that we'd have two languages two official languages in our, you know, in our uh, commerce, more or less. That's Keen on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Philip Outer Hayes, remembering Woodstock. No, not that Woodstock, Woodstock 99. When most people hear the term Woodstock, they envision the peace and love spirit that defined the original 1969 festival. That could not be further from the truth for Woodstock 99. This festival took place over a now infamous July weekend at a decommissioned Air Force base in Rome in New York. That's uh, Rome, New York State, in case you're confused. Netflix has a new documentary out now giving us an insight into what happened from people who were there. And Ken Sweeney, showbiz editor with the Irish Sun, has been immersing himself in the train wreck, that's the title of the doc, that was Woodstock 99. Good. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Wow. This is the best thing on, on anywhere at the moment. Screening services, TV, this is the best thing to watch. Absolutely <laughs> horrifying from beginning to end. And it was all looked so good at the start. Yeah, like, like you know, like most things. We're talking about train wreck Woodstock 99. Like most things, it starts off the best of intentions. Michael Lang had been an original uh, player in Woodstock 69, decides 30th anniversary of Woodstock's coming up. Why not celebrate it? And unfortunately, the, the Columbine massacre had happened in April of that year. He wanted to make a, you know, make a, do a vigil about gun violence and, and get all these people together, you know, in Woodstock and recreate the original festival and also send out this message. But the problem is that everything has changed. 69 to 99, you know, it's a very different uh, landscape. Um, you know, this very well, you just said comedy. it yourself. I mean, you have the yeah. Columbine massacre. Yeah. You have a completely different culture. This is not yeah. the summer of yeah. love. So it yeah. was never going to have the same vibe about it. You've got Fight Club on, you know, on, in the cinemas. You know, there's a lot of toxic masculinity around American Pie. It's it's a very male time. And, and of course, the biggest problem is is the bands. You know, the, the Woodstock '99 set out to get the biggest bands on the planet. And whereby in '69, you people like Joan Baez talking about peace. And you know, you also got to remember that Woodstock, the original Woodstock, happened or Organically, there was an anti-war movement. It just happened. Mm. And the, one of the big problems with this is you can't recreate something that just happened organically originally. So what's that? Yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, the yeah. main culture change here seems to be that 1969 was all about free love. But by 1999, unfortunately, in the place that young men and women were at in that part of New York anyway, yeah. the vibe was really quite rapey. Yeah. It was very, very scary. Yeah, I mean, so the Woodstock 19, Woodstock 99, they decided they get of course the top bands you know going at the time and the problem was that the top bands you know at that stage were you know were Limp Bizkit you know Rage Against the Machine Corn and they were very you know they were very um 
aggressive male bands and they attracted a very, uh, you know, a very aggressive yeah. uh, bunch of people to and the Michael festival. Michael Lang admitted in the yeah. documentary that he didn't actually <laughs> know that much about the music act. He didn't know anything about them, yeah. They, they yeah. were warned and let's just hear a clip yeah. of one of the younger organisers saying, hang on a second guys, yeah. I'm not sure about the way that you're programming this at all. A couple days before the festival starts and we're in a meeting, um, you know, with all the department heads and the 22 year old me raises my hand and I try to bring to everybody's attention that they need to really look at this lineup of artists. So I was the, you know, the young kid trying to bring some sense to um, a, a room full of adults that had really no idea of, I think the lineup that they put together. And Michael Lang and everyone just looked at me like I should not open my mouth. So how did that end up feeding into or fueling what happened? Well, instead of, you know, like on the opening day, Tibetan peace monks, you know, turned up to bless the festival in the Woodstock style. And, and of course, what they get instead is, is frat boys. Frat boys have turned up. And you go, just go right back to, let's say, Woodstock 69. This is whole thing, peace, uh, love and understanding. And um, a profit needed to be made at this festival. So th that was why they booked these successful bands. But peace, love and understanding and profit don't necessarily go together, you know. <laughs> No, so this, this is a major problem. So from, from the outset, you know, uh, frat boys turn up, you know, with their tops off, they're aggressive, they're, you know, they're marching around. And it's like you're actually watching this documentary which, which you're, you're like your hands over your eyes and you're kind of laughing because that's what you do when you, you see something that's so dark and so things are going so wrong. So all these kind of kids turn up and uh, immediately, you know, there isn't enough infrastructure and I suppose to make money, to make profit again, the, the festival have sold off to France franchise right so they can't control the sale of, so everybody's uh, yeah. getting gouged yeah getting gouged so you, if you want to listen this is the incredible thing think about this they were taking water off people coming into the festival bottles of water you know they were taking water off them they got inside a burrito was 8 euros and these, these kids are immediately starting to feel pissed off okay why does it matter as well the profit thing because whereby the original Woodstock took place on a sunny farm you know you go to somewhere like the electric picnic and what you see grass and fields and it puts you in a great mood to make uh, Woodstock 99 work they put it on an air base Imagine a military airbase. A, de a decommissioned, yeah, a decommissioned air base. with a fence around it, right? So by the end, you know the way sometimes people, there's a hole in the wall and people like break into the festival. By the end, people are breaking out through the wall, out of the festival. So it's on this festival. There's a huge... Um, and Huge I, runway, Tarmacadam, and of course Tarmacadam and Heat, and it's a big fence. So and it's so, and add yeah. into yeah. that mix some pretty aggressive, very often misogynistic new metal music or heavy metal. Uh, and just take a listen here to what one of the uh, security workers on the stage said as Korn took to the stage. In all of the shows I have worked, I don't think I have ever seen the intensity of the crowd before a band came on, like I did with Korn. We're all sort of looking at each other saying, holy shit, what, what is about to happen here? Trainwreck, Woodstock 99 on Netflix. Ken Sweeney from Today with Philip Outer Hayes. And on Morning Ireland, 3,000 Ukrainian refugees currently living in student accommodation will have to find somewhere else to live when the students return in September.
Over 4,200 Ukrainian refugees are currently being housed in student accommodation around the country. 3,000 of them have been told they must leave where they're staying by the end of the month. The government says it's agreed exit dates to ensure that the accommodation is available to students at the uh, beginning of the new academic year in the next few weeks. However, many Ukrainian families staying in student apartments have not been told where they'll be going to next. At NUI Maynooth, up to 600 refugees are currently being accommodated, but more are arriving daily. Our reporter, Jonah Sullivan, spent the day with some of the volunteers and staff involved in greeting new arrivals and those trying to plan for their future. I love my country very much and um, I didn't want to go from Ukraine. Nina Dinanieva is a Ukrainian refugee and earlier this summer she reluctantly left the capital, Kyiv, with her seven-year-old son. Um, I, I understood that it's very difficult for my son to be there. It's uh, very dangerous for him to be there. That's why we took a decision to go from Ukraine and... Um, he was crying in the train, in the plane, but uh, when we came here, um, I understood that uh, I have impression that I know these people a lot of years. Uh, they are very um, cool people in Ireland, in Manus. It's uh, so great people. They helped us, help us very, very much. Nina was placed in student accommodation in Manus University in June. Since then, she's managed to get alternative accommodation, but she's come back to help the team here as they welcome hundreds more refugees for the month of August. Because when we came, uh, we didn't understand. And now we have a team. Uh, we meet people from the bus and they know what they will have this month. Another busload of refugees arrive as we're talking. They've come from City West and are greeted by volunteers, university staff and the Irish Red Cross. They're given welcome packs and vouchers because some have come with almost nothing. One woman uh, went from the bus and I asked her about uh, where is your luggage? And uh, he showed me that she has just one bag. It's not a suitcase, it's just bag um, that... Uh, it's everything that I have. I don't have house anymore. I don't have anything, just this bag. This is Minut's second time hosting Ukrainian refugees. Gemma Irvine is the Vice President for Equality and Diversity at Minut University. At the moment, we're probably looking um, between um, four to 600, um, but we're aiming for 840. That's the number of beds that we have available for the month of August. In June, we had about 420 guests staying with us from uh, Ukraine. The vast majority are coming straight into the country, uh, to City West and then coming to us. So it may be the case that as soon as they have enough for a bus, they'll send a bus over to us. Um, so we've had quite a few arrivals, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we have a few more today and then we'll start again on Monday. University is starting back up in September. You are going to have students back. That's going to present a problem, isn't it? 
We would have had guests staying with us in June, 420 or thereabouts, and they had to leave because we were fully booked up for uh, summer camps. So we have been in this situation before, and a lot of those people went on to pledged accommodation. They would have gone to other um, locations around Ireland, and then some of them would have gone back to City West. So we'll be working with the department and government in a similar situation, but absolutely we're honouring our accommodation for our students, and every student coming back will have their accommodation as they had thought that they would. Yuna Labyuchenko arrived with her children on Saturday. She'd fled from Odessa and is incredibly relieved to be somewhere safe. Your country is so uh, kindness for us because uh, we happened uh, in uh, the strange situation, terrible, because the war is uh, um, not good for a uh, psychical uh, child. Uh, and we must get out uh, our country. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, Ireland so kind and so um, very, very uh, big heart for Ukrainian people who needed in, in help in this time. Yuna speaking to Joan O'Sullivan from Morning Ireland. Then later, Oliver Callan was talking to Mary Attridge about her decision to host a Ukrainian family. Uh, you were the one of people who were thinking, how do I help the Ukrainian families? I can't move them in with me. But there is something that you came up with, which might be of help for, to a lot of people. Yeah, Oliver. Um, so, you know, it's great seeing so many Irish people step up hosting Ukrainian refugees and probably doing other gestures that we're not aware of. But I was racking my brain trying to think, how can I help yeah. beyond uh, the, don- the euros that I donated? And in early Ju- July, I just uh, had an idea then to invite a Ukrainian family or Ukrainian ref- individuals out for a day trip where I'd provide the transport activities, you know, of whatever supports was needed. And I kind of looked at it as kind of a type of a respite offer. So It's a I fantastic emailed. idea because you didn't have, uh, you weren't in a position to open up your home, um, but you did have no. somewhere, you had a, a thing in, in Kerry, a place to stay in Kerry? I do, yeah. I have a mobile home in Kerry, thankfully. So that's that's like a In the Dingle home. area, so a beautiful part of the Down world. Down the Mahreen, yeah. The Mah- and like not everybody has a mobile home either. So, you know, I'm very conscious that I suppose I'm looking at it as kind of day trips. Um, yeah. But I did have the added benefit of having the mobile home for sure. And of course, um, you, you realised that this was too far out of the way for someone to stay kind of, uh, you know, full time as it were, because they need access to services and all that. And it's just not... Yeah. That's right, Oliver. Yeah, because I did think could they stay a week, and I thought, well, there's no transport, so that'll be a problem. So yeah. I said that I'll I'll host, I'll be there. So and this I idea of respite is such a good idea. Tell us how you uh, you were about to tell us there before I interrupted you. How did you find the family to link up with Mary? Yeah, so I emailed the refugee agencies uh, to see was it a good uh, offer, uh, the respite offer, and they said it was great, but they're already overwhelmed uh, trying to manage kind of the essential support mm-hmm. that they have to give to refugees. So they recommended that I just put a notice up on um, maybe a notice board in some of the local hosting uh, hotels or hostels. Mary Attridge talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.